Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, I have a great, great, really important show for you today. We're going to get right to it because it's actually a fairly long episode. I want to make sure that you have time to listen to all of it, so I'm going to keep my intro short. I have with me today Kelly Blackburn. She is an attorney. She works out of San Diego County in California, and she is a high-conflict domestic violence, child custody, and divorce attorney. This is her area of specialty, and so in this episode, we're going to cover all things domestic violence, law enforcement, the courts, all of that stuff. And it's it's a doozy. It's a heavy one. It's really important. Really, really, really important. If you're experiencing any kind of domestic violence, please listen in with my conversation with Kelly Blackburn. Kelly, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us all things DV and the law essentially. Absolutely. <laughs> not, a, not a problem. All things. It's a little broad. So we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. stick to the DV and the law implications there. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I thank you for having uh, me on and I am happy to answer all the questions that I can for you and kind of educate your listeners and just really give a full explanation as to domestic violence and how that intertwines with maybe welfare services agencies that are involved in individuals' communities, um, the police, how that might be involved, and and really the underlying litigation that may or may not come from this and what kind of what your listeners can expect when mm-hmm. they find themselves in this type of situation. Yeah. And I want to talk about, you know, restraining orders, temporary restraining orders, all of the protective orders, all of those things. Um, Cause I think it's important to define them all and define like how you get them. And just a, a caveat, Kelly is in Southern California, as am I, you know, she's very familiar with the laws in California, but um, I think that there are some of these that are cross that cross over um, pretty nationally as well for the most part, but there are things that people should look up for themselves in their own state. Most importantly, we want to be educated on this, right? Like we have to know this in advance. Like if someone is in a domestic violence situation right now, it's not acute. It's not like in their face right now, but it's happening or there's a fear of reprisal from getting a divorce, right? How can people best educate themselves on like, what should they be Googling? (laughs) What should they be looking for? Besides listening to this podcast, by the way. Sure, sure, sure. Um, So I think that there are a number of resources on the internet. Um, Some of them are not always going to be the most accurate, of course, but I think there are a a, a number of resources that somebody can use to educate themselves, but really kind of understanding the the basis in which domestic violence is defined. And like you kind of touched on earlier, I am in Southern California, um, and so I'm going to speak to how domestic violence is defined here in our jurisdiction. Um, And I'm not necessarily 
necessarily going to speak to outside of our jurisdiction only because I'm not licensed to practice law in any state other than California. So I really wouldn't be the best advice that you could get in your jurisdiction if it is outside of California. But moving kind of digressing back to California um, and the way that we we define domestic violence here is we really looked at the individual acts of a person. So that could be anything from as serious as there's been an assault or a battery. There's been a physical touching that is unwanted on your person. That is the definition of a battery. There has been apprehension of a physical touch that's unwanted on your person. That's the definition of an assault. Um, The other, it can be as serious as that. And it can be as, as simple as numerous phone calls in a day that are unwanted, numerous text messages in a day that are unwanted. Um, And then you have a whole subset of domestic violence that is, you know, kind of stalking and the following of your person that is unwanted or the keeping track of you that is unwanted. Um, Mm -hmm. And when we look at what domestic violence actually really encompasses, Um, You know, you have to have one component of either the harassment, the touching, the apprehension of touching, the stalking, you know, that kind of creepy behavior um, in combination with essentially a fear that and it it has to be an objectively reasonable fear. So it can't just be, hey, I'm afraid because I'm Kelly. It has to be. I'm afraid because the reasonably prudent person would also be afraid. If I presented the same set of facts to my neighbor or my friend or a colleague or a third party stranger who doesn't know me, they also would be afraid in this situation. And so that has to be essentially where you are. Now, there's also a, a carve out in the law in California, at least that allows you to, instead of fear, allows you to use the phrase, um, disturbs my peace. Mm. And so that's really speaking to, and, and kind of the, the legislative intent is really speaking to, in my opinion, those carve outs for the harassment, those carve outs for the 85 text messages in an hour, those carve outs for the, you know, multiple phone calls in a day. Um, that's really what that's speaking to because, you know, is is somebody going to necessarily be fearful if they have received 85 calls in a day? No, but it's going to be, it's going to be very annoying and it's going to be borderline harassing. And, and that's where you look at that phrase of, well, it disturbed my peace. That's kind of your two-part test. So you have to have one of the first thing, harassment, touching, stalking, apprehension. And then you have to have the second thing, which is either an objective, reasonable fear, or there is this element of somehow it has disturbed your peace and it, and it's really disturbed your peace of mind. And it would cause the reasonable person to feel that as well. Mm-hmm. Not, not okay. just, you know, a subjective person. And so that's really your, your avenues of domestic violence in understanding those, you have to understand that there's also two types of restraining orders here in California. Let me rescind that statement. There are multiple types of restraining orders, but there is two, two levels of a restraining order in California. So there's essentially your temporary restraining order, which you can go down to the courthouse and in the matter of a couple of hours, you can fill out a temporary restraining order. You can ask for child and custody protection on there as well, where they will essentially over the course of the hour that the judge reviews them, they will grant 
or, or deny temporary custody orders as well. So it is your quickest way to custody orders. Um, but they will deny or grant custody orders and they will deny or grant protection of your children in addition to you seeking that protection. Um, and that is a temporary restraining, restraining order. That restraining order is granted with no notice to the other party and it's or denied, but it's reviewed with no notice to the other party. Um, and it's reviewed and decided with no hearing. And so it's only in place for a maximum of 21 days, right? Because then you start to get your constitutional liberty interest. Once that restraining order is granted or denied, the court at that, that review process will also set a temporary restraining order hearing date. And that's your first hearing date. And the other party has to be served with process personally served before that hearing date. And at that hearing date, that's when you have an opportunity potentially to put on a case for a permanent restraining order. So your first level of a restraining order is a temporary restraining order. Think of it only lasting 21 days and there's going to be no hearing. What's the burden of proof for that? What does a judge need to see? Yeah. So a temporary restraining order is really just an imminent threat. The judge needs to see that there's an imminent threat. Um, and so that's why, because it is all one-sided, temporary restraining orders are actually tend to be very extremely, extremely easy to obtain. So an imminent threat being like, I'm going to kill you yes, or sir. like, Absolutely. you know, like, um, but like, is it, are you going to get a temporary restraining order based on a hundred texts a day? Yeah, potentially. If you okay. got a hundred texts, you know, potentially if you got a hundred texts, in one day over the, and it, it was a couple of days in a row type of a situation. Right. If it's consistent, if it's a consistent behavior. Correct. Mm -hmm. um, and it also is going to depend on what those text messages say, right? If it's, uh, if it's something where typically people, people don't like to be ignored, right? So if, if those right. text messages start to escalate in, mm -hmm. it goes from hello, hi, how are you? To, you know, if you don't answer me, I'm coming, I'm going to find you, you know, those types of escalating text messages. That's where I think that you also have a pretty straight faced argument that you are receiving text messages that disturb your peace and also potentially put you in an apprehension of, of, of harm to your person. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, these, you know, this is, you know, in terms of, you know, listen, we all know that emotional abuse is a form of domestic violence, but it's also very difficult to prove. Even in the UK, where coercive control is illegal, it's it's been proven to be almost impossible to prove. Right. Um, right. And so this is we have to have more than just his, you know, manipulation or the psychological, right? Unfortunately, even though emotional and psychological abuse are forms of domestic violence, they are just not going to rise to the level of restraining orders because there's like, how do we prove it? Not by themselves, not by themselves. Right. So, you know, what all you other forms of abuse, by the way, contain elements of emotional and psychological. Of so, course, right. of course. And what you'd really want to do if you had an emotional abuse or a psychological abuse um, case, you'd really, really, I think the best evidence that you ever really have in, in a restraining order or frankly, in defense of a restraining order is we all live through our text messages. Look mm -hmm. a year prior in text message history. 
Because if I'm seeing that you guys have this tumultuous, you know, this tumultuous relationship over the last year, but it's very push, pull, push, pull, you know, come back. I love you. No, I don't love you. No, come back. I love you. You know, if you have a lot of that, I might be able to debunk your restraining order pretty quickly. Um, And, and so you know, being the person that's advocating for themselves for a restraining order, you should also think about those things. What have I put in writing in the last year? And, you know, what is this going to look like to a court? Is this going to look like I'm doing this for some improper purpose? Sometimes getting courts to understand that the push-pull cycle is part of a domestic violence cycle is not always the easiest thing to get them to understand because, Courts are looking to, you know, what is the objectively reasonable person going to do? I'll tell you that the objectively reasonable person isn't going to say, well, you threatened to kill me on a Tuesday. But on Friday, I said, you know, come home. I miss you. Please come back. The objectively reasonable person is going to find that you didn't think that that threat on a Tuesday was a viable threat if you're then inviting essentially the devil to your door on a Friday. That's right. And that's, I think that's really important. I say, tell my clients all the time, do not respond, do not respond, do not respond. And this is part of it is psychological, right? Because when someone is harassing you via email or text message or calling you, they're trying to get a rise out of you. So as soon as you go and defend yourself or, you know, get angry or whatever, they've got you, they've hooked you. Mm -hmm. So and the second piece of this that you're look that you're talking about Kelly is that the second you start responding and you get it becomes a two-way dance and from a legal perspective a two-way dance is not going to hold up as well in court as just a one-sided dance right it's it's not it's not going to be very helpful and you know i think part of the problem and part of the 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 trouble in getting courts to understand it but you and I might understand it or or kind of the common sense look at it is well listen if i'm not a lot of times i find that clients of mine that are filing for a domestic violence restraining order weren't ever anticipating that they were going to be in this situation said differently i find that all of the sudden overnight my clients are like oh Oh, oh gosh, I, I need a totally. restraining order. And yeah. the problem with that is that think about being an abused person in a relationship and you guys probably have part of this cycle is that, you know, maybe you've been in this relationship for three months, maybe you've been in it for 30 years. Um, but part of the cycle is we, you know, they threaten, they fight, they do whatever they do. And then you just at some point, because this is your reality, this is your life. And at some point you just want to like ease the tension. And so you want to say things to make it better. Hey, I'm sorry. Hey, just Mm -hmm. come home. We'll forget about it. Hey, no big deal. Hey, it wasn't really that big of a deal when you slammed me into the wall. I mean, you want to say things that kind of lets the other person off the hook. At least that's emotionally where you might be. And that's where I find that a lot of my clients are. And so they do say things that are, you know, potentially damaging, very damaging to their case because they're looking at this as not, I'm filing a restraining order on Friday and I need my best evidence. They're looking at this as this is my life, what I'm subjected to. And at some point I just need to be able to move forward. And so you are tempted to put things in writing that 
are, you know, very, I'm just going to sweep it under the rug type of phrases. Well, and it's more than that, right? I mean, that is the cycle of abuse. And because most victims of domestic violence don't want the relationship to end, they just want the abuse to end, right? They love the person. They the, the, the number one barrier of all the barriers, the number one barrier to reporting or leaving is love, is right. that they love this person. And so because they don't want to leave end the relationship, they want to end the abuse. Of course, they're going to, you know, oh, oh, things are simmer simmering down. Okay, good. Okay, good. And we have this magical thinking that, oh, it's over. Okay, right. it's over. He's not going to do it again. He said he's not going to do it again. Even if he says he's not going to do it again 75,000 times over 30 years, every time, every time we want to believe that it's true. Correct. Right. And the problem is that judges are not most judges don't have additional. They're not required to have domestic violence training. So they're not seeing these subtle nuances that those of us who are trained in domestic violence and actually can just watch the cycles and know what they you know, know what we can sort of plot them on a on a graph. Right. We know what it all means. But if you don't have the training, you've, you're like, well, you said you loved him. Right. <laughs> you said, right. Right. Well, and this is how we get reabused by the justice system. Right. Well, and to that point, too, it's not just your judges that aren't necessarily going to have the training. There are going to be some lawyers who are family mm -hmm. law lawyers and they are not going to necessarily have the training or they're not going to have the understanding or the same level of understanding as you or I might have. And the problem with that is that you really have to, you, you know, family court is about painting a picture. It's about right. letting somebody else stand in your shoes through words, but you have to do that through words and exhibits that are put forward and they're only snapshots of your life. And you have a very short amount of time to do it in a family court system. And so you really have to have somebody who understands the cycle of abuse and understands how you can plot the points and understands how to recognize them, but That's also right. somebody who can color it. We're mm -hmm. painting a picture together and I need somebody yes. who knows how to use the watercolors. And That's if exactly they don't right. know how, then you're not going to get your point across. Um, and it's also, I mean, that said, you can use a very savvy attorney to debunk these things as well. And so, you know, if you have a savvy attorney that can pivot away from, you know, the, I see that you're plotting A, B, C, and D, but I'm going to go over here and I'm going to show you why those things are not actually things that you should focus on. If you have that savvy attorney, you you could very well lose your restraining order. Um, if, if you have that person that you're going against and maybe your attorney doesn't understand the actual DV, underlying DV case and how it kind of just perpetuates on itself. Yes. So, oh my God, so true and so important. This is, and the same thing with therapists. Like we, I talk about this all the time, right? You need a therapist who is has additional training in domestic violence. You need a coach who knows about domestic violence, right? These are, it is so specific and, and so insidious and it can be so um, convoluted mm -hmm. in so many ways that you need a specialist. You do need someone who really specializes in this um, in order to, you know, to advocate for you in, in, in court, in, you know, in your brain, <laughs> like right? wherever, right. Totally. For sure. Totally. Um, so let's go back to, um, 
so the restraining order. So then you have a hearing. So, and this to me, I think is one of the barriers, right? Because you've got a temporary restraining order and then like it's served and like, you got to get, first of all, if you're in the house, like you've got to get to safety, you've got to get out, right? Then you've got to go to court and you've got to face him and you're terrified of him. Yeah. Right. So there's a couple of her. There's yeah, there's a couple Mm -hmm. of things here. Um, On your temporary restraining order, the other thing you can ask for is a kickout order and the court will grant you temporary possession of this home. And so if there, if it's too much for you to, you know, come to court, ask for your restraining order, ask for child custody, all these changes, you have 21 days essentially of, of probably this protection, this temporary protection that's going to go into place. You know, you can ask for the court to grant that you have the house or you have the control of the apartment. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get it all through the litigation or all through the TRO, but, um, you know, it is a possibility that overnight you get this kickout order. And so that is something that you should know exists because if your one deterrent is, oh gosh, where am I going to go? You don't necessarily have to figure that out because that's part of your restraining order request is, Hey, I need to stay here now in that 21 days, depending on your situation, you may need to be making plans to, you know, have a different living arrangement after that first hearing date. You may need to be making different plans for child custody arrangements. You may need to be making different financial plans. You know, those are all things that it is possible. And you would want to ask your attorney, hey, what do I do about this? Or what's what's what am I going to do here? But it is something that you should know kind of going into it is that you can ask for temporary possession of the property or wherever you're living, even if it's an apartment, if it's a lease, if it's, you know, it gets a little bit trickier when we're talking about a property that you don't own and potentially a property that you don't own and you're not even on the lease of or a property that you don't own and you're living with the the abuser's family members, you know, so those types of things get a little bit trickier. They are certainly things that can be navigated with savvy attorneys. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're communicating, that's the biggest thing, communicate. And so, you know, when you're dealing with someone who doesn't actually have financial agency in their relationship, right, this is actually a sign of domestic uh, abuse because this is financial abuse, which is another form, right? So can you say like, I don't have, there's nothing in my name because he, he, they have been exhibiting this much control over exerting this much control over me. And I don't have money of my own. I can't pay an attorney of my own. I can't, my name isn't on my car. My name isn't on the, the you know, is that evidence of financial abuse that a judge can override in some way? So a judge can can look to those things as as facts to kind of help your underlying TRO in the prosecution of your claim for a permanent restraining order. Mm-hmm. But in and of itself, if you don't have a car in your name or a cell phone or the rent in your name or you're not allowed to get a job or, you know, what what have you, those claims are almost as difficult to prove because, yes, you're going to say, hey, I don't have it. I don't even have a utility in my name. I don't even have a car in my name. I'm not allowed to drive the car on, you know, weekdays, whatever it is. But there are so many reasons that that could happen in an individual family unit that a court isn't going to be able to just identify that as a standalone fact and say, that's abuse right there. So you're going to have to have more. You can't just have, hey, I don't have a car in my name. 
you can say, you know, I want possession of his car or I use his car to transfer our children to and from school. And I need the court to grant me access to use of that car. You can say his, my, my name's on, or my cell phone's on his cell phone plan or her cell phone plan. And I need access for my cell phone line. You can ask for all those things in your, in your Mm -hmm. temporary order and potentially get them. But Mm -hmm. If you came to me as a client and said, well, hey, I don't have any utilities because I was never allowed and I don't have a car because I wasn't allowed and only on Tuesdays, if I'm really, really good, I can drive the car and you know, I I don't have access to a bank account. I don't have a debit card. That in and of itself is not going to be enough that the court says, okay, that's a, there was DV here. There was some coercive control. There was, you know, some mind some some psychological abuse or some damage that has been done there. And that in and of itself is dispositive ev- evidence that there's domestic violence. They're not. So you're going to have to come at something, something else. One of the things that, you know, the personality type of the abuser that is going to want control over those things is also going to want control over the person that they're with. And so a lot of times you're going to see that the DV is prevalent in other areas of their life. Hey, you right. cannot go to the store. Hey, you cannot leave the house. Hey, you cannot wear that. You know, mm-hmm. you cannot mm-hmm. talk to this person. I will break your phone if you talk to this person. I will take your phone from you if you talk to this person. They're going to exhibit control symptoms in other ways. And that's where looking to the text messages and the written correspondence between the parties, that's where you're going to get your case. Someone who's financially abusing someone isn't only financially <laughs> abusing them, of course, right? Typically. These things don't, they don't stay in a lane, right? Yeah. Typically, they don't stay in a lane. And now a quick word from our sponsor today, the Should I Stay or Should I Go program. That's right. It's my program. I'm sponsoring myself today. Look, if you're terrified, brokenhearted, and desperate for answers, if you've consulted oracles and spirit guides and journaled to death about whether or not to leave your marriage, if you've taken all of the classes, read all of the books, and listened to all of the podcasts, but you're still not sure what to do, then Should I Stay or Should I Go is for you. Should I Stay or Should I Go is a self-paced online coaching program that will give you all of the tools you need to make the best decision about your marriage for yourself and your kids. There is no other coaching program out there designed to answer this specific question, backed by an in-depth study of marriage and human psychology. There is no other coaching program out there created by someone who has walked this path or has such an incredible amount of experience helping women successfully travel the road to freedom. Freedom from doubt and confusion, freedom from constant worry and the swirl of indecision, and freedom from a history of unhealthy and toxic relationships. If you're ready to break free and find the answers you've been looking for, along with confidence and clarity, then join me and hundreds of other women in the Should I Stay or Should I Go program. Truly, the time is now, because you, my love, deserve to be happy. Just go to kateanthony.com slash should I stay and use the code DSGPOD for $50 off. That's DSGPOD, as in Divorce Survival Guide Podcast. So it's kateanthony.com slash should I stay and use the code DSGPOD and you'll get $50 off for being a loyal and faithful listener. Thank you so much. And now back to our episode. When is it important to call a shelter? When is it important for someone to 
go on, go incognito, go somewhere where he, you know, they literally can't be found. I think the minute that somebody has a a viable fear that there is going to be some sort of threat or injury to them or their child, they need to leave. Um, but in leaving, it's, it's not just calling a shelter. That's only one way, um, to leave. You know, you could stay with a family member. You could go to the police station and ask them to help you. You could, um, you know, call up a friend and say, Hey, I need to stay with you. And I want to, you know, I want to stay pretty, you know, pretty hidden for a little bit. You could get a hotel. Those are all things that you could do. Um, but some things to kind of be aware of. If you go to the police and you make a statement, the that's on record forever and ever and ever. So whatever mm-hmm. you have just said to the police, if they jotted it down in a report or if it was on a telephone call, those calls are recorded. We can subpoena them. And so it is very important to know that all of that information is going to be preserved. And so if if I, let me just give a practical example. Let's say that, you know, John goes to the police station on Tuesday and says, my wife is really scaring me. She's doing a lot of things. She's, you know, yelling at me in the bedroom. She's yelling at me in the streets. She's taking our children, you know, and not telling me that she's taking them to their activities. And then I get John's declaration. He makes that report to the police on a Tuesday. And then I get John's declaration that he filed for his temporary restraining order. And it says, you know, my wife hit me in the face. My wife slashed my tires. My wife, you know, called and told me she was going to kill me. Well, John, why didn't you report all those things to the police on Tuesday? You were in a safe space. You could have told them, you know, what was going on, but you didn't. So now the claims that you made on Tuesday to the police versus the claims that you have on Friday in your declaration, they look disingenuous because it looks like now you're exaggerating. And maybe the reality is John wasn't feeling great and was very shooken up and he didn't get to report all of the things so the yeah, John was probably terrified. And this right. is, I mean, I think you see this really often, right? Really that's often. Why it's extremely important. Your restraining order doesn't have to start with a police report. Your restraining order could start with a conversation with your attorney. Your restraining order could start with, you know, a conversation with, you know, a therapist. Those are the places where it could start, but just understand that whatever you say in a police report, in a telephone call to the police, that's going to be memorialized forever. And now right. let's let's talk a little bit one step further than that. Let's say you go to the police or you call the police because something has happened in your home and you are reporting domestic violence and you report that your children. So one of two ways this happens, either option one, you tell the police, yes, he came at me with a knife and our son was there and I am terrified. The police are are likely going to take that as a report. They're likely going to try to, you know, get some statements from the other party as well, but they're also going to refer that to child welfare services or whatever your welfare services agency is in your jurisdiction. And the reason for that is because any type of domestic abuse that happens in front of the children is potentially a criminal act. And so because let's say that there was 
you know, he came at you with a knife in front of your child, your child is now, you know, there's a child endangerment issue there. There's a, you know, potential child abuse issue there. And so the police are going to refer that to child welfare services. If for nothing else, they're going to do it because they're bolstering their own investigation, because now there's going to be a social worker assigned. The social worker is going to come out and talk to mom, talk to dad, talk to the child if the child is old enough. But the thing that you have to understand is once you make that report, that's like unringing a bell. You cannot do it. And so once that report is made, it's made. The other way a child welfare services investigation gets started is you call and report or your neighbor calls and reports, and then they come out just a social worker. The police weren't even involved, but a social worker comes out and says to you, hey, your neighbor's reported screaming. And you say, yeah, well, he came at me with a knife. And they say, well, where was your son? Well, our son was in the corner watching, crying, screaming the whole time. Now you have a social worker that is, you know, her interest or his interest is to protect the child in the situation. And so, you have and and social workers show child welfare services can also refer their reports to the police for prosecution. So it can go both ways. And those agencies really try to work hand in hand. The thing that you have to know is once you make that telephone call, it really or or that report or that social worker comes out and you and you make these statements, social services is going to require that you protect your child, that the that the victim in the situation or the perceived victim by child social worker or by, by child social services is going to require that you are acting as a protective parent. And so that may mean that child uh, welfare services is telling you, you have to get a restraining order against this person to protect you and your child. Because if you don't, we're going to find that you are equally culpable for this abuse and we are going to initiate a petition to terminate your rights to your child as well. Yep. And so that is a huge issue in these abuse situations. Yeah. If you're not protecting your child, you become culpable, even though you're the victim. A hundred percent. Yeah. Once you make that call or once your neighbor makes that call or once the situation escalates to that you're going to be in a situation where you potentially are facing somebody telling you you're doing something wrong. Child welfare services making you feel like you're an unfit parent or you're a parent that seeks to or is going to potentially lose some custody or lose visitation with their child because you are not taking the measures that you need to take. And so if you're going to make that report, once that report is made, you're done. Like that is, that is your commitment. You are moving forward ready or not. Because if you do not, your, your child suffers, you potentially suffer. And there's just not a whole lot that an attorney can, can do to help you if you're not willing to make that commitment to protecting your, your kiddo once that report has been made. Yeah. And you know, there's so many of these things that are, that appear black and white right? Like, oh, this is the law and this is how it works. And it goes this step, this step, this step. But then when you're in it, there are a million ways in which it goes sideways or it doesn't actually, you know, those dots don't connect as cleanly as we would like them to, right? Right. I was doing a, um, a, you know, 40 hour DV training 
and there's a sheriff and he's like, and this is the thing. And then we get the call and then we go in and this is then we file this report and we say this and we say this, and then this is removed and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's great. That sounds great. <laughs> and maybe, you know, the Orange County Sheriff's Department is that good. But nine times out of 10, I don't hear that story. I hear right. the story when the cops were called and she's backpedaling and she doesn't want to prosecute and, or she doesn't want to press charges or she, right. And then it's like, oh, well, we can't do anything. Right. I guess our hands are tied. We can't, we can't do anything. Mm -hmm. Yep. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah. So I, you know, I made a misstatement in my, in my, um, kind of intro in this is that there's actually another type of a restraining order Mm -hmm. that potentially comes before your TRO and that's an EPO. So a cop actually has the ability to, to grant you on the spot, an emergency protective order. Mm -hmm. And this can last from 24 hours to seven days. And the purpose of it is to basically give you some, um, security and some coverage for, the time frame that it is going to take you to reasonably go to court and file a domestic violence restraining order. And so cops can issue EPOs um, on the spot if they have concerns. Um, and they can do and- it without the victim's consent, correct? Correct. Thank they you. can. Yes. And they also, um, they can, or they can issue an EPO. They also can do it with only talking to one person and not not even having a discussion with the, you know, perpetrator of the abuse. Um, So they can also issue that. A lot of times what happens, again, whenever police officers are involved, anytime there's a domestic abuse situation, cops will have to report out. They will have to come out to the scene. They always tell people in California that we take domestic violence very seriously. And so because of that, somebody always has to get arrested when we when we come out to a scene. That's not the case. It's really not. Yeah. Um, and and in fact, all too many times, that's not what happens. That's right. Even if somebody has said, you know, it was a little bit of a shoving match between us or it was this or it was that. Um, I, I find a lot of what happens is victims start to take some of the responsibility, right? Um, because they're saying we don't want to press charges. We don't want to press charges, right? You can, you can kind of, it's going to be very agency dependent and it's going to honestly vary from officer to officer, but you can bet that if there's any type of markings, the (laughs) officers Mm -hmm. are potentially going to try to arrest. Yeah. Um, if there's any type of markings, because why they don't need your cooperation to prosecute. They can say, I came to the scene. I showed up at March 7th at two o'clock in the afternoon. Mom was standing there. Child was standing there. What we what suspect number one was standing there. Mom had markings around her neck. Um, I took I photographed them. These are true and correct copies of exhibit number one. They stayed in the chain of custody. They're attached to my report that I published here. I referred it to the prosecution for their prosecutorial duties. Um, And that's what they can do. Yeah. Now, it's just a straight. He said she said they need a little bit of your cooperation. They need to know what actually happened. And so that's where I think you, you as the victim have to understand. And in that moment, prioritize, what are we doing here? Am I, am I here because the call has been made and it's time for me to exit this situation? Or am I here because, you know, this is just another day in the life of me. Right. And, and of course, asking someone to make that kind of 
uh, judgment call in the midst of trauma is very difficult, but um, hopefully sort of, you know, after a couple of hours, you can actually start to like, you know, and, and that's why it's important, actually, I think, at, in that moment to actually get away, even if it's only temporarily, because right. it's in the 24 hours afterwards that that the love bombing is going to start and the right, like, I didn't mean it and I'm sorry and yada, yada, yada. And then your brain is if you're in a trauma bond, this is, you know, you're addicted to that dopamine hit. You're 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 ripe for being pulled back in. So if you can separate for 24 hours and you can get your, you know, prefrontal cortex back online and you can start to have some rational thought and hopefully call the domestic violence shelter, call the hotline, get someone really talking to you through like what's really happening. You have a better chance, I think, of of getting out. Um, There's something that's really important that you said, and I want to really drive this point home, which is that Victims don't decide to prosecute or not prosecute. The district attorney decides to prosecute or not prosecute. And so even if, uh, and I think this is something that's really important, even cops don't know this, by the way. A lot of cops don't know this. So they'll write in their report, um, decline to prosecute, right? Or doesn't want to press charges. Um, And if at all possible, you want to get that taken out of a report, because it's it's fucking irrelevant. <laughs> it's well, just fucking it, irrelevant. Even, even more so than that, I'm a savvy attorney. Mm-hmm. That's my first question. Right. Hey, you were offered safety right in that moment and you didn't take it, did you? Mm-hmm. You wanted to stay. And in fact, you didn't even want him taken in custody. Mm-hmm. You wanted him to stay there. And you told the prosecutor, you told the officer that you weren't going to prosecute. And you, you probably even told the officer you weren't going to cooperate, were you? Because all of this is a lie, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's the line of questioning. So you're dealing with a savvy attorney on the other side. On the other side. That's what the other side, that's not what you're going to say. You're not going to say that to a victim. (laughs) No, no, no. But that's, that's what I'm saying. If, if you are a victim and you get, and you say, I'm not going to prosecute. And they write that in the police report, or maybe you are being interviewed. I get this a lot in front of, uh, you know, in, in earshot or yes, eye shot, which you should never do. Should, should never happen. And you're way too afraid of how this turns out. Mm-hmm. I in said a different way. You're too scared to actually tell them, yes, I will help you. Yes, please help me. Yes, I need you. Yes, this happened. Right. This is everything that happened because your abuser can see you and hear you. Right. And you don't know at that moment when you're making that report, you don't know at that moment that the cops are or are not going to take this person into custody or are or are mm-hmm. not going to take this person and issue an EPO against them. And so you're too afraid to make that report. And so then you have a savvy. So what you lead to is I'm not prosecuting. I'm not cooperating. Uh, no, thank you. I don't need anything. I don't need medical attention. Please leave. I don't want to speak to you. And then you have a savvy attorney on the other side and you're the victim sitting in the witness box. And I'm the savvy attorney basically explaining to the court again, I'm going to do a very good job painting the picture that you're not really a true victim because a true victim would have taken the way out right then. And you didn't take the way out. So you couldn't have been that scared. And it's not because maybe I don't believe that you're a victim. Maybe, maybe I do believe it, but it's my job, just like it's the other attorney's job 
to advocate our position. And so you have to think about all of those things right. when you are making the statements. You know, not that you have 9,000 other things going on and you're, you know, in distress and emotionally traumatized and your whole world just flipped on its head. You also have to be be responsible to think about all these other right. things. Right. That's right. You've got to be sort of functioning on both tracks, Correct. which is why it's important for which is why it's really important for victims to have attorneys that are experts in domestic violence and can refute right. those right. Th- that line of questioning. Well, on I don't stand. even refute it. I'm going to draw it right out at the front. You're going to take the stand and I'm going to say, hey, mm-hmm. you were interviewed by the police. Where were you standing? Where were they standing? What happened then? Did you tell right. them this? Why would you tell them mm-hmm. this? But if you don't have an attorney mm-hmm. who's going to see those things ahead of time, you're going to have a problem. The yeah, other right. issue is, you know, right. you, you made a statement of it's it's important to get it taken out because, frankly, it's fucking irrelevant. I agree with you. But what you don't want is in that moment, your adrenaline is going. You are talking to the police. You are, you know, your anxiety is through the roof. What you don't want is you don't you're not going to communicate the best that you've ever communicated in your life. And, and what you don't course, want is you don't course. want the police to all of a sudden feel like you're getting combative with them because now you've just put Mm -hmm, yourself in mm -hmm. a light, especially if it's a, he said, she said situation, you've put yourself in the light where maybe the police are taking a step back going, wait a minute, this person's very combative and this person's completely argumentative. Let's talk about it. And again, this is why, you know, law enforcement needs more domestic violence training, you know, as we saw in the Gabby Petito case. And as we saw in that video, if they, if those cops had had domestic violence training, they would have recognized that the person who is distressed and, and looks crazy is probably the victim who's being gaslit when, when the, when the other person is like cool as a cucumber and totally fine. When there's that large of a disconnect, the person who looks insane is yeah. probably the victim. Well, and also, you know, the person who doesn't look like they're comfortable in this arena. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. Right. Why, why right? are you so comfortable? Why are you so calm? You've done this before, haven't you? You anticipated this conversation. That's right. You've played it out on your head many times. Yeah. So, you know, you can be a savvy attorney on the victim side as well, because you can get that cool, calm, collected person and say, hey, let's talk about it. Why are you so calm? The police are there. You're being accused of very gnarly things. Why are you so calm? What's happening? Mm -hmm. But you you have to and it's not even just intuition. You have to have that innate ability to recognize like, I see what's happening here. They have to have training. And we're not, they're not doing enough training, <laughs> right? Um, whew, there was something else I wanted to talk to you about that comes up. I see it a lot where there is domestic violence. There is a lot of, or psychological, you know, abuse, like all of this, like, and, and especially with someone who is with mental illness and stuff like that. Right. And the victim doesn't, doesn't file a restraining order and even says, you know, I want 50-50 custody. I want to share, I want shared custody because they don't actually think that they're going to get full custody because the family court favors shared parenting, right? And then they get in front of a judge and something happens and they're talking about the abuse and the judge is like, well, then why, why are you, why did you want to share custody? What if he's so bad, if he's so bad, 
how come you didn't file for, yep. for full custody? So what do you, what do you say? What do you, how do you address that? Well, here's the problem is it's really, it's the actions or inactions of a party that are the most telling. Mm-hmm. And, and by that, you really have to look at, you know, you can't say, I, I get clients all the time who come to me and say, okay, but when we were together, he did all these things and then he threw this and then he threw this and then he would hit our kid and then he would, da, da, da. okay. So I'm looking at your paperwork in pro per, it says that you filed requesting a hundred percent or requesting 50% custody. So how, right. or even even yeah. off 50%, even yeah. let's say two days a week. So he abuses you and you're terrified of him. And you, your position is he's abused your child, but you're going to tell the court that he's safe enough to keep your child in his care for 24 hours at a time. Right. There's a disconnect. And that is a problem. That's why it is critically important, frankly, to never, ever file anything in family court on your own, because your attorney is even even probably one of the not greatest attorneys on the planet is still going to have a a catch meter for. Wait a minute. These two things don't make sense. And even if they make sense in a domestic violence circle, even if they make sense in how the the victim's brain is going to process they don't make sense to the family court. And so this is part of painting that picture and having an attorney that knows how to color it. And if you, if you can't, um, you're going to end up going to court by yourself. You're going to put things in pleadings that absolutely just discredit and debunk your argument. And, And what's worse, frankly, I think than getting, you know, than not getting a restraining order when you, when you actually need one or when you actually have a very good case for one is going to court and having a restraining order denied because you weren't doing the things you're, you're, there's a disconnect between what you're saying and what your actions are. You know, you can't say to me, I'm, I'm very terrified. My child and I are very terrified of this person. And then the following day, you, you invite the person to take your child overnight or longer. You're so terrified. Then why on earth would you ever allow this person to do that? I I also, I want to push back a little bit because I, because I really want to be careful about victim blaming because so often we don't feel like we have a choice, right? If you're the victim and you're being, and there's all of this, you know, crazy making, gaslighting, you know, psychological abuse that goes along with all kinds of abuse. You don't feel like you have a choice. You don't feel, so what you're saying is like, these are the the roadblocks that are going to come up in court for you. So we have yeah. to be very aware of them. Yes. Um, uh, but they're also, right. And again, this is why we need more domestic violence training in family court, because if you're if you're trained in in domestic violence, you understand these things. You know why he, she did that. You know why she didn't file for full custody because she's fucking terrified. You know why she's letting the kid go for 24 hours because she's literally praying that he's okay and praying that he will like leave her alone for 24 hours. She's giving him a cookie so like maybe he'll lay off for a week, right? I mean, if you are trained in domestic violence, you know why we make those choices. And those, the court system is not. And so therefore we have to be, you have to be aware of these things that this is what, this is what the court will say of you. Right. Right. Well, and, and my comments are, are obviously not geared towards victim blaming, um, but, but more towards victim awareness, because, you know, the more, you know, the more helpful it's going to be. 
Um, I think that a lot of people think that they're doing the right thing because they've been told that you have to share 50-50 or they've been told that the family court's going to make you anyway. Um, But you have to make sure, again, you have to know your audience and you have to know that not every audience member of your your court is going to understand why you may or may not have made those choices. And so understanding what they're going to think of your actions and understanding how your actions are going to fall on their ears Mm -hmm. is really critical, which again is where, you know, having an attorney say to you, Hey, this is not, you know, this, this is not, this does not make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, That's Mm -hmm. where that's going to help. But also just, you know, think some people can't afford an attorney and I get that. And, and, you know, think about it in, in just a basic common sense stature. If I'm terrified of this person, am I going to go agree to go meet them in a parking lot to do an exchange at nine o'clock at night? No, you're not. No, you're doing that at the fucking police station. Right. Or, (laughs) or you're saying, or you're saying I'm having somebody else be there, or I'm saying I'm having somebody else do the exchange or, you know, but, but the point is just common sense, check yourself. That's right. Write yourself a little statement about what has happened. Put that away for 24 hours. Go back and read it and say, do, do my actions make sense? If right. I was sitting on a jury of 12 people, would I think that the person testifying to me about these things that they did, would I think that made sense? Right. Exactly. Make common sense. You're, you're thinking, you have to think about this defensively, right? You've got to think you, and, and it's really hard to do when your brain is scrambled, um, in trauma, but you do need, you need to sort of think about this defensively. Okay. If I were right, can it be challenged in court? What, how do I want to present this? Right. Just like the text messages don't respond, right? right? Because the judge isn't going to look at that when, when you, when you get into it. So, so, and I think it's important to say like, you may end up with shared parenting, but it, but it is better that the judge mandates it rather than you ask for it. Right. It's also better to look like in most situations, it's also better, you know, if the domestic violence is completely behind closed doors and it's completely between you and your, your partner, and they're just such a very good covert narcissist that nobody else has ever seen it, including your kid. And it doesn't involve your kid. Then don't involve your kid. Then so don't. you're saying for, in those cases, go ahead and file for shared parenting, sure. right? Sure. Because, a, because a judge isn't going to isn't going to give it to you. And now I don't ever, and I don't ever really believe that somebody who's a covert narcissist who abuses a spouse doesn't also abuse children, but it is, but it is almost impossible to prove. Right. But here's, here's the real, the real reality. You don't want your restraining order to look like you're doing it for an improper purpose, like an advantage in family court. And so if, if a judge hears, well, the abuse was just between mom and dad, why are we putting the children at issue here? Why are we involving the children? Because he's an abuser. But I <laughs> but anyway, court, <laughs> I understand. The court right? is not going to look at it that way. The mm-hmm. court's going to say if dad's never done anything to the to the child, you know, and you're it's going to be you're going to be hard pressed to get a judge to believe that, which is so silly to me. But you're going to be hard pressed to get a judge to believe that. Well, because he abused me, the pro- 
propensity for him to abuse another person that is, you know, when this relationship is no longer intimate and he doesn't have this outlet of somebody to bully and badger. Supply. Supply. Mm -hmm. He's going to do it to the next person in line. And that next person is going to be our oldest child, our middle child, our youngest child, whatever it is, all of our children. It's going to be very difficult to get a judge to think about all of those things and, and to connect all those dots. Because again, family court is always looking at, we need to child share. Right. They're all, they're all about reunification and shared parenting. Right. And it's really one thing that people have to remember is that the, the theory of a lot of judges is that two parents, even a parent that's not a great person, or even the parent that was formerly an abuser or whatnot, is is going to be better than one parent. And that's what the court is always going to look to. I don't agree with that. Um, either. <laughs> I don't either. But, you know, this is I, why I, we need more training. This is why right. family court judges need more training in all but of this I stuff. The problem is that that is kind of the bar in which a lot of judges are operating. And so again, Uh wrong, right, believe it, don't believe it. You need to know your audience. And part of this is knowing your audience. And, and sadly, honestly, the people that are listening to your podcast, I don't think are necessarily going to be the people that need this conversation the most. I think the people that aren't Googling, that aren't figuring out what to type in, that aren't saying, how do I fix this? Those are the people that really, really, really are really in bad situations. And I think that, you know, there is not a way for me to reach them or for you to reach them. Not to say that your audience doesn't also experience this, but they're already one step ahead and they should commend themselves because they are seeking out resources. They are doing all these things, but Mm -hmm. I'm sure that they're Googling with the fear that, oh gosh, what if my history pops up? What if I accidentally leave the web browser open? What are the penalties going to be? What's the repercussions going to be? I think that, you know, the buzzwords in terms of Googling, I think you Google domestic violence restraining order. I think you Google, you know, what constitutes domestic violence? You know, what is, what is uh, domestic abuse? I think the the hotline, the hotline the hotline.org, the domestic abuse, um, the national domestic abuse, um, domestic violence hotline, uh, their website, they redid it in the last year and it's fucking amazing. So that is, you know, the hotline.org. I highly recommend it. It's really good. Um, Kelly, thank you so much. I feel like we could go on about this forever. We really could. really could. But thank you so much for being here. Any final words and where can people find you if they happen to be? You're in San Diego, yes? Yep. In San Diego, the best way to find me, even I'm very generous with my time, at least I try to be. And, you know, even just uh, Google search my name, Kelly with an I, Blackburn, black like the color, burn like ouch, one word. Just Google my name and you will, you know, you'll find a ton of stuff. I've done domestic violence podcasts before. So you'll find those. Um, You'll find my website. You'll find me on Yelp. You'll find me on Avo. Um, But I'm certainly, I make myself very accessible because I typically practice in the arenas of domestic violence. And I know that that is a bar for people. So I want to make myself accessible. I want people to contact me, even if you just have a question or two um, and really aren't, aren't ready to move forward with anything. I am happy to give some extra time just to kind of help somebody along their way. And, you know, maybe at the end of it, they're better for it. 
Oh, that's so generous. So generous. And all of Kelly's information will be in the show notes. Kelly, thank you so much for being here. It's just such a wealth of information. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for hosting. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.